All right, so, so let me, let me kind of introduce. This is a little different, but I want to introduce the message time. And, and I want to do that now so that while we sing our next song, we can really treat that song for what it is meant to be treated as, and that is as a time of prayer. So, so what I want to couch this morning's message in is a story that's found for us in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is dealing continuously with all of these people who are trying to combat him and fight and argue with him. And he's in the temple and he's teaching people in the temple. In the middle of his teaching, from the back of the room, the door busts open and here comes a mob of men dragging a, a, a woman, a tattered woman, down the aisle. Can you imagine that happening in our service this morning? Do you think you would notice? As the doors bust open and a a mob of men drag a woman down the aisle and throw her on the floor before Jesus and they say, okay, Jesus, listen, here's the deal. This woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone this woman. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. It's interesting that the way these men used the law was to condemn somebody. Now Jesus, being Jesus, says he stooped down and he began writing in the sand. We have no idea what he was writing in the sand. No clue. But as he's writing in the sand, the the scripture says that they continued to persist in questioning him. And so as they continued to persist in questioning him, he went from stooping over and writing in the sand to standing up and looking at them and saying, okay, the one of you without sin should be the first one to throw a stone at her. And then he stooped down and writing in the sand again. Now, again, we don't know what he was writing. It would be so awesome if he was writing like their names and the names of the women they had committed adultery with, and then the second time he bent over, he like drew an arrow just to make sure they knew. (laughs) We, We don't know. He could have been drawing unicorns for all we know. We have no idea what he was drawing in the sand, but what we do know is that as he began drawing in the sand again the second time, they heard his words, and they left one by one, starting with the older men. There's a little insight there. You're never smarter than when you're like 23 years old. And the older guys are like, he's on to us, we're out. And from older to younger, it kind of gets down to the place that the 23-year-old's like, I guess I'm out. Um, And so he leaves, and now it's just Jesus and this woman. And Jesus stood up, and he said to her, woman, where'd they go? Has nobody condemned you? She answered, nobody, Lord. And Jesus' response to her was this, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, don't sin anymore. You see a radical kindness flowing from Jesus in that moment. You see the application of when Jesus said in John 3, 17, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I came to the world so that the world would be saved. And Jesus looks at this woman, Jesus being the only one who could have possibly thrown a stone, but didn't. And he said, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to rescue you. 
Let that be the voice you hear this morning as we talk about the topic of abortion. I want to sear into your minds the picture of Jesus holding your face as the tears run down your cheeks. And as he says to you, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Cling to that love. Remember that love. And remember, there is no sin that is so big that the love of God cannot rescue you from it. Um, so I, I want to attempt to remind us as many times as possible uh, of grace. I want you to understand and know um, what it means to experience grace. Um, I think one of the things we have to remember in doing that is that God does take sin seriously. And he took it so seriously that he sent his own son to pay the price of all of our sin. So I want to remind you that if you've experienced an abortion or you have been involved in a relationship where there was an abortion, I want to remind you that in Christ there is forgiveness full and free. So I want to remind you throughout this entire thing, please don't hear the voice of condemnation from me. If you hear a voice whispering condemnation to you, it's not me and it ain't God. It's the voice of the enemy. I also want to, this is weird coming from me, I want to caution you all um, against being overly exuberant this morning. And that reason I want to caution you against that is because of grace. I, I, I'm going to assume a lot of quiet amens this morning, okay? You guys do, it is funny. I wish, one of these times, I'm going to video from up here so you can see your faces. Because it is pretty amazing. When it gets serious in here, you guys get serious. You're intimidating. Well, most of you. I won't name names of, of who I look at when I need to smile, but... I also have a few people I look at when I need to realize I'm not all that exciting because they're out cold. Um, so <laughs> um, I do both. But um, one of my, my concerns is that with over-exuberance and this, the, 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 hey, yeah, that's right, you go get them, yeah, that what that does is that preaches an anti-grace gospel to people in here who are struggling this morning with this topic. I think normally that's perfect and, and, and acceptable and wonderful. I think this morning we would do well if we just considered our neighbors this morning in love. So, uh, I ain't going to call you out if you clap or if you shout an amen or anything. Just be careful, because I do have a couple of twists in there. You may say amen and then go, oops. Um, I'll try not to make fun of you too much. So, so my game plan this morning <laughs> is to basically end when it's time to end. Because I literally could talk until 2 o'clock. So, I have a couple of points in here that I'm going to hit, because I think it's important for us to answer this question, which I'll, I'll go over here in a second. Um, but, but I'm just going to go, and then when it's time to be done, I'm going to be done. I hope to uh, walk through um, kind of a, a biblical understanding of some things, a biological understanding of some things. Moms and dads, don't worry. I'm not getting detailed. I want to deal with some arguments, and then I want to pray. I want to pray because the issue of abortion is so incredibly illogical we hold these truths to be self-evident. Sound familiar? 
Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal and have certain unalienable rights endowed by their creator, and those rights are what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are self-evident. But we have to fight to prove them now so they're not so self-evident, which is illogical. And for this to be so illogical, I believe it has to be something spiritual. And so at the end of our time together, we are going to pray. And we are going to pray that God pushes back the darkness. So the question this morning that we're dealing with is this. What is the biblical teaching about abortion? Is it ever appropriate for us to consider human life and not be life? And so I want to begin, and I'm just going <coughs> to, sorry, I need a cough drop. Genesis 126 says this. Then God said, let's make man in our image according to our likeness. Men will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. So what we need to begin with at the very beginning of the entire discussion is we need to understand that as humanity, we have been created in the very image of God. God created us and put his image on each and every one of us, giving us dignity and giving us value. So as, as God created us to... To, to be in his image. Basically, you are created like a mirror. And it's unlike any other created being at that point. You're, you're created like a mirror to, to image the glory of God. And I, I think, to be honest, one of the things we have to admit out of the gate is that the mirror isn't all that impressive looking. I mean, you look at a mirror, some people go with some really ornate mirrors, but what makes an, a mirror impressive looking is what's being reflected in that mirror. And so if I'm holding the mirror up like this and the glory of God is shining behind me and it's reflecting the image of the glory of God, it's very impressive. But when I turn that mirror around and now what I'm doing is I'm being fascinated with my own shadow, well, then I've failed as an image bearer of the holy God who created me. So, 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 so God created us to bear his image. God created us with dignity and with value and to the, this is true for those who are in the womb, they too bear his image. <coughs> so, we have to be honest. That's a good place to, to start, to be honest, right? We've got to be honest with what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say. And I'm going to, this may sting a little, so just give me grace, please. This is where, um, when we go off into a political worldview, we lose credibility, Okay? Because there's a huge difference between a political worldview and a biblical worldview. So let me explain that just real briefly. A political worldview, you've got to get to the outcome you want so you will do what you need to do in order to get to that outcome. So politics, if you talk politics with anybody, they're, they're famous, or maybe the right way to say it is infamous, for, for doing the, uh, accomplishing their goal three different ways. One, they demonize the other side of the argument to make themselves seem better. You need evidence of that. Just watch any of these awesome presidential debates. Some of them are even on the same team, and they're demonizing each other. Yield on certain areas in order to gain in other areas. And the third way that they attain their goal is straight-up deceit. Now, they may not lie. They may just tell half-truths. So in a political worldview, it, it, it's become acceptable, if it's not just blatantly acceptable, to demonize your opponent, to yield in certain areas, to gain in other ways, and for you to introduce deceit. In a biblical worldview, you are not responsible for the outcome. 
And I wish Christians would understand that. What you're responsible for is every moment and being obedient in each and every moment. So that means instead of demonizing your enemy, you love your neighbor, even if you disagree. Instead of yielding on certain areas to gain in others, it means you never yield on truth, even if it means you're going to lose. You always stick to the truth. And if you lose, guess who's still in control? God. Biblical worldview, it means you are honest all the time, even about areas that you see as deficiencies. And so I say all that to get, get back to this. We need to be honest in our approach with the topic of abortion. We need to be honest with what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say. So for example, there is no chapter and verse that tells us when life begins. You have to own that. Now don't freak out. Some of you, I'm watching your faces. You're freaking out. Breathe. It's going to be okay. But there is no chapter and verse that, that lays out, okay, so here is where life begins. But it doesn't do that. So, so now listen, God has given us incredible abilities to think and reason and study and, uh, and, and to learn and to combine all of that with his word and to land on some pretty amazing facts. So, so think about it. The Bible doesn't tell us about DNA, does it? But we know about DNA, don't we? The Bible doesn't tell us about all of the planets in our solar system. But it seems like every day we're learning something new about those planets. It doesn't tell us about what time the sun will rise and what time the sun will set. And yet, using the wisdom that God has given us, we can understand that. The Bible doesn't tell us the most amazing fact that I've learned in life. Lasagna is always better as a leftover. Have you ever noticed that? It's amazing reheated. The Bible hasn't told us that the Redskins will find a way to have a losing season this year. Experience has told us that. The Bible has. So, so don't freak out. It's like, well, the Bible doesn't say it. It's, it's okay. When you take all of these arguments, I, I believe what you find, well, let me, let me lay some out for you. Um, so Bible teaches and assumes little ones in the womb are to be regarded as legitimate people. And God doesn't explicitly tell us when life begins. He shows us how intricately involved he was in our development. Look at Job 10, 11. You clothed me with skin and flesh. You wove me together with bones and tendons. Psalm 100, verse 3, acknowledge the Lord as God. He made us, and we're his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Isaiah 44, this is what the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, says. I'm the Lord who made everything, who stretched out the heavens by myself, who alone spread out the earth. Jeremiah 1, 5, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I pointed you as a prophet to the nations. Genesis 25, 22 is an interesting verse, and I, and I think what you, you've got to understand is that, well, let me, let me read the verse. So the children inside of her struggled with each other, and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire the Lord, and the Lord said, because you've got two kids inside of you named Jacob and Esau, and they're going to struggle forever. But here's an interesting fact about this. The word children in the Old Testament, here in Genesis 25, the word children in the New Testament is used for both children who are in the womb and who are outside the womb. It's used interchangeably. And I think the, 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 probably the, um, the passage that helps me the most anyway uh, in trying to draw a conclusion about when life begins is the passage I have you in right now, Psalm 139. So look at Psalm 139. I'll start reading in verse 13. Psalm 139, verse 13. For it was you who created my inward parts, 
You knit me together in my mother's womb. I'll praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones, they weren't hidden from you when I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. In the beginning of Psalm 139, you have the psalmist basically admitting, God, I can't escape you. It doesn't matter where I go. If I go high, you're there. If I go low, you're there. If I run away, you're there. It doesn't matter where I go. You are always there. I can't escape you. And God, you were intimately involved in my creation. You, you knit me together in my mother's womb. For any of you cynics here, Christians aren't dumb. We know the Holy Spirit isn't in there with little knitting needles putting bodies together, okay? We understand the way that biology works. But God is the one who is the agent and responsible for that biology. And so as God was intimately involved in fashioning us together like a master craftsman, he, he's a product of our creativity, verse 14, or we are a product of his creativity, sorry, verse 14. And, and so we praise, even if we just know the very basics of how we're put together, if you begin to wrap your head around some of the things that happen within the womb as the child develops and how God is the agent of that development, it leads you to praise I'm intricately woven, I'm embroidered, I'm skillfully and creatively put together like a beautiful fabric. And God, verse 16, you knew me and have been forming me since I was conceived before a single one of my days had begun. My thought, your thoughts have become the plans for my life. That master creator has had his hands on your life from when you were being formed to when you lay down at night to sleep. There is no doubt that the child in the womb with such an intimate involvement with the master creator is a human being. And I'll be honest with you, it's terribly sad that that's where we need to begin our argument. It's not a massive tissue. It's not a piece of waste, not a clump of cells. The master creator is forming a human being, and not only is he forming a human being, he is so intimately involved in the formation of that human being that his future days are already marked out by God, his personality, his stature. I, I, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when I was in my mama's belly, God had already created this bald, extroverted, loud dude for this moment right here. And that brings dignity and value to life. So you take that biblical evidence there and you introduce what we're now aware of medically, biologically, experientially, and we can say, and I believe we can say it without a doubt, that life begins at conception. You look at conception, and immediately upon conception, there's a new DNA strand that's created that is distinct from mom and dad's DNA. And in that moment, that DNA strand contains the entire genetic code that develops into the individual particular characteristics like a size, shape, eye color, hair color, blood type. 
and all those things of a personal human being, they're established at conception. You, you begin to watch the development of that child after conception, and then within two to three weeks, the heart is beating, and it's observable. You can see the heart beating within five-ish weeks. By eight weeks, there's brain waves and fingerprints, and all the necessary organs are being at least foundationally formed and those necessary organs that will continue to form and become necessary for life. At eight weeks, the baby in the womb feels pain. Without getting all the details of the development of the baby, because I could take another two hours doing that, um, we need to recognize that the biological, theological, and scientific evidence tells us that abortion has nothing to do with a potential human life. No matter how far along the pregnancy, abortion ends the life of a genetically distinct individual human being. Who's condemning you? If you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. There's forgiveness. It's full and it's free. Go and sin no more. Some of the objections that are thrown, uh, the most, I'll say the most boisterous, and for good reason, is this. It's my body. It's my choice. This is a part of my body. And let me, let me, let me start by saying this. I get that. I, I understand your passion. Um, here's why. We're not the first. But in an abusive and selfish culture that toys around with sex outside of the parameters that God designed it for, the women and the children are the ones who bear the weight. It's historical. You, you look back. In ancient Greece, it was a crime for a woman to get an abortion, but not because of the death of a child. It was a crime for a woman to get an abortion against the wishes of her husband because it was about the husband. It was a crime in that time for a woman to get an abortion if the husband had perished because by getting an abortion, well, you just removed someone who might have claimed his estate. Cicero made a speech about a woman who had an abortion and said this, this, she has destroyed the hope of the father, the memory of his name, the supply of his race, the heir of his family, a citizen intended for use of this republic. It has nothing to do with the woman. You look at the time of Moses and Jesus, it's a little different, but today it's really not that different, is it? The idea of killing a newborn just because it's a boy. But why was that done? And Pharaoh did it in order to, to, to squash the Israelites to maintain control. Herod did it in order to wipe out the one who might come and take his throne. It was all about control. It was all about their selfishness. It was all about their own personal desires. And I'm going to tell you, that is heinous. And so there, that's the reason that women are crying out to be heard and want to have a right to be able to do with what they see as protect their livelihoods from the control and abuse imposed on them by others. Um, I know there's some of you in here who uh, were forced 
by a boyfriend or even a husband to have an abortion. Um, you were forced by somebody who loves themselves so much they felt they had to end their own child's life in order to keep their life going in the direction that they wanted. And um, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't imagine what that weight feels like. So, so I get the passion behind, I want to be able to control this myself, but, but there's a problem when you, you fall off into the left-hand ditch on the side of the road, and the way you seek to fix being in that ditch is you get out of the ditch and run into the right-hand ditch. And so going from one ditch to the other isn't the answer. To remove yourself from the control of someone and then impose your control over someone else is still wrong. There is a middle of the road, and that middle of the road includes consideration of the life of that baby. Now, scientifically and medically speaking, that baby is not a part of the woman's body. Let, let me hear me out. It's definitely in the mother's body. But the baby is a distinct human being living within the mother. It has a unique DNA strand that is not the same as mom's. If, if baby has a different blood type than mom, mom doesn't have two different blood types. She still has one. If mom is having a baby boy, that doesn't mean mom has become female and male. No, 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 no. Mom and baby are still distinct. The, the, the baby is absolutely dependent on mom's body for survival. But, but, but to live on your own isn't the criteria for personhood. So, if it was, a bunch of 20-somethings living in their mom's basement wouldn't be people. Um, sorry, I, I throw a little humor in there to break some of the tension. You guys are looking a little nervous. No, no, seriously, living on your own isn't a criteria for being a person. So, so, because if it was, then that would mean anybody on a respirator or even dialysis, by same definition, would not be defined as a person. It, it is your body, and you should have the, the dignity of your body protected, but that baby has a body too, and she deserves the dignity and protection as well. I, I think the... Um, the, the question continues to kind of jump towards some of the exception uh, ideas. So is it ever appropriate for us to consider human life uh, to not be life? So what about rape, incest, and the life of the mother? Um, those are hard questions. And, and not necessarily because the answer is hard, um, but because it's hard to live with the answer. So let's... let's uh, I say start with the easy one, whatever. The life of the mother. Please understand this. When the argument is being made about the life of the mother, abortion should be legalized in the event that the mother's life is in peril. Uh, be careful not to mix life of the mother with health of the mother. Those are two very different things. It's going to make mom really sick. It is. It could kill mom at any moment. That's a different argument, okay? Okay. So you just need to be careful because the statistics that get thrown at you will be a little wonky uh, and not line up with the way they should line up. So let me throw this at you as an example. In one year, the United States, this is back in the 1980s, the United States statistic was that 2.8% of the abortions performed in that year were for the life of the mother. It's almost 3% of the abortions. 
However, when you do a more extensive um, statistical analysis in England from 1968 to 2011, so I mean, that's a really extensive period of time, uh, and it's a little different over there, they need to, they're mandated to give a reason for their abortion, it was less than half of a percent were to save the life of the mother, but over two and a half percent were because it was affecting the mother's health adversely. So, so just be careful to compare apples to apples when you're having conversations. So, so when it comes to uh, the life of the mother is in jeopardy uh, as she continues to carry this pregnancy, it is uncommon that that would be true. So there's a fellow, if you ever do any time studying this issue of abortion and getting the statistical analysis and all that different stuff, you're going to come across this fellow's name, Alan Guttmacher. It's a great name. I don't know if that's how you say it, but I'm calling him Guttmacher here on out. So Alan Guttmacher uh, was uh, a president of Planned Parenthood. Uh, he really is kind of been the mouthpiece and the, uh, the scientific medical genius behind much of what Planned Parenthood has put out even to this day, even though he died in the early 1970s. In 1967, he said this, today, so remember, today, 1967, anything different in the medical community between 1967 and 2019? So, so just for a frame of reference, the uh, life expectancy in 1967 was less than 70 years old. Life expectancy today is at 80 years old. So we've had some pretty enormous medical leaps since 1967, and yet he said this in 1967 in a book that is called The Case for Legalized Abortion Now. It's not like he's on our team, just in case you're wondering. And he says this, today, it's possible for almost any patient to be brought through pregnancy alive unless she suffers from a fatal illness such as cancer or leukemia, and if so, abortion would be unlikely to prolong, much less save her life. So, so it is uncommon. However, it's still possible. For example, there is this thing called an ectopic pregnancy where it's not possible for the baby to live because it's actually growing outside of the womb, most often in one of the fallopian tubes or, or, or something like that in that area, sometimes in the bladder uh, or on the bladder uh, of the mom. And what happens is as the, as the baby grows, uh, it can't sustain life, and then because it's growing in an area that the mom's body isn't prepared for it to grow, great damage is done to the internal organs of the mother and can lead to the death uh, of the mother. Now, you, uh, you, you may know, I don't know, but Stephanie and I experienced an ectopic pregnancy. Ours was a little different. Um, we didn't know we had an ectopic pregnancy. We knew we were expecting. That's all we knew. Uh, we didn't know that we had an ectopic pregnancy until after the baby had already done the damage to Stephanie's internal organs and she began to bleed to death internally. Um, so ours is a little bit different of a situation. In, in this situation, the baby's alive now, but the baby can't grow in that kind of situation and survive. But if you leave that baby there and it does grow where it is, at least for a little bit before it dies, it will possibly kill the mother, maybe even likely kill the mother. So in that kind of situation with the, the certain death of the baby, taking the mother's life with the baby, you then have to ask this question, what would you do? I would have to beg God for wisdom that I don't have. I would have to rely on the wisdom of godly doctors and nurses that I know who are way smarter than me to give me as much information as they can about it. And then um, Stephanie and I actually had this discussion because we knew there was a baby in Stephanie's uterus and where it was supposed to be. 
And we knew they had to do the surgery to save her life. And they made the comment to me, here's the deal. We're going to do whatever we can, but we can't guarantee that that baby in the uterus survives. And our response was, do your best. Do your best. We want the principle to be, when the life of the mother is threatened by continued pregnancy, everything possible should be done to save both mother and child. And if they're doing a procedure, then I want to make sure that procedure isn't uh, intentionally aborting the baby, all the while being honest that the treatment could, as a secondary effect, terminate the life of the baby. Now, in our situation, we were told the baby in the womb would not survive. They were wrong. That happens a lot. The baby did survive. That baby is 17. He may not survive his teenage years, but he survived the womb. So, um, <laughs> um, yeah, no, praise God, right? God's good. Um, we had, um, yeah, we had some excellent opportunities through that because it was, God, whatever you want, you, you do. Now, listen, that one is not easy, but you're still talking about a human being, and so you need to pray and cling to the wise people who you're around. The other exception is the cases of rape and incest, and I'm, I'm going to group those together because really, as an argument, they do go together. So abortion should be legalized in the, the case of rape and incest. Listen, I, um, there is, there are, uh, I can't think of, of anything much more soul-damaging um, and tragic and horrific and unfair, just unfair. For a woman to have to go through than being raped. And, and as horrifyingly evil as it is, pregnancy as a result of rape is so immensely traumatic. But, and you're going to have to hear me out through this one. The life of the child who was conceived cannot be the price that is paid for somebody else's heinous act. Every single human life is sacred at every point of its development without regard to the context of its conception. And as hard as that is, the baby didn't do anything wrong. And um, the baby shouldn't be penalized because of the sin of a horrible human being. So I would say, no, rape is not a warrant for killing the baby. The baby's not a criminal. Now, I know uh, the argument that's made, and it's a valid argument, but every time I look at that baby, I'm going to be reminded of what was done to me. And you are absolutely correct. The, um, it's foolish to think that a woman would look at a baby that is conceived under those situation, that situation and it not be hurtful to her. I don't understand people who just say, you know, if you just give birth, then everything's going to be okay. 
It's not true. Um, even, even if her rapist is sentenced to the fullest extent of the law, and he should be, her road to recovery is going to be traumatic. But how does a civil and a moral society treat an innocent human being that reminds us of a painful event? You gotta stop thinking baby in womb isn't a real baby. There is no difference between a baby in the womb and a six-month-old. So is it okay for us to kill a six-month-old so that it makes us feel better and we stop thinking about a traumatic event? No, nobody would say that. Hardship never justifies homicide. So we, we need to be careful not to make that distinction where it would be okay to remove some of the consequences that aren't yours, that you don't deserve, or the consequences of living in a fallen world. I'll admit this right up front. I hate the way my answer sounds. I hate the way my answer feels is maybe a better way to say it. Because I know that mom is going to suffer consequences for doing the right thing. Doing the right thing is not always easy, is it? Um, okay, time-wise, good. Here we go. I'm going to wrap it up. So what can we do? What, what can we do? Uh, I, I think it's important that we understand what biblical morality demands of us. Let me put this here. 34.14 of Psalms. 34.14. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. I think for too long, the church as a whole, not Uniontown Bible Church, but the church as a whole, the universal church, has done a fantastic job rejecting evil while never embracing the good when it comes to the topic of abortion. So what biblical morality would demand is when one action is prohibited, the opposite is implicitly commanded. And so if we were to say, listen, folks, Abortion takes the life of a human being. Abortion is murder. So we should turn away from abortion, but what should we do? So let me ask you the question, what are you doing? Oh, I post a Facebook thing every once in a while. Okay, that doesn't count. Only 300 people who pretend to be your friend read that. What are you doing? I think the first thing that we need to be doing is we need to be willing to walk and serve alongside those people who are choosing life instead of abortion. We're, we're quick to run to that front door with our pickets, with our fancy little slogans, the things that we can chant really loud. And that's okay, whatever, that's one thing. But what are you doing with the ones who walk to the door, see you, and then turn around and walk away? How are you serving them? How are you caring for them? Because if you don't serve them and you don't care for them, guess where they're coming tomorrow? Same place. You can't say abortion is murder without saying to the pregnant woman who chooses life, we want to serve you. Let me encourage you to listen. Love. Foster. And adopt. You can give and donate. Be willing to babysit. Donate supplies, mentor, provide housing for some of these young women. We'll talk about that in a second. 
however God has equipped you uniquely to do this, you need to do this. So, so you need to be willing to serve and walk alongside these women. You need to participate in writing letters with clarity and respect to those in leadership. Please hear those two words, clarity and respect. We need to take advantage of the rights that we have as citizens, so we should be voting for those candidates who are going to promote life. We should be seeking out ministries that we can individually support and serve women in crisis pregnancies. There are four that I'm going to mention right now. I'll put these uh, websites up on the screen here for you. There are four that I have become familiar with and done some poking into. So there is one in Reisterstown called Alpha Pregnancy Center. The website's there for you. I would encourage you to go visit their site. Uh, they, they offer all kinds of resources, parenting classes, abor- post-abortion counseling. And somebody reminded me this week, it doesn't matter how long it's been. It still hurts. And it hurts more than just mom. So, so Alpha Pregnancy Center. Uh, another one is in Gettysburg and Hanover, Tender Care. Tender Care is another uh, uh, pregnancy center. It used to be in Westminster as well. It used to be in Westminster as well. They just closed the one in Westminster. Don't get disheartened. I'll talk about that in a second. But the two in, in Gettysburg and up in Hanover, Pennsylvania are fantastic. Tender Care. The one in Westminster that, excuse me, was Tender Care is now the Pregnancy Support Center of Carroll County. And it opens tomorrow. So we praise God that even though the finances were too difficult for tender care to continue that organization, another one has stepped up and filling in the gap. And then this one's not up there, but I'm going to talk about it for a second. It's called Mary's House. Mary's House is a, 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 a fantastic, something that I've gotten to know a lot more about in the last six to eight months. It's a ministry that somebody here within our church is, is intimately involved with. Jody Sell is very involved in that. And if you have any interest in any part of this, then I would encourage you to talk to Jody, and you will walk away at least passionate about it. You may walk away and be like, I have no idea what I'm passionate about, but let's go get them. But you will be passionate. It is a fantastic ministry that serves at-risk women as they choose life. They move into their home, they have the baby, Jody and Tim spend time teaching them to drive, getting them around, getting them to work, doing all these different things, and it is amazing to watch. They stay uh, at Mary's house for about a year. I know from a conversation with Jody that what Mary's house needs right now are places for these women and their babies to live in after they're done at Mary's house, after they've spent that year in Mary's house, a place that's low rent, where they're, they're able to, to move in either to a room, to an apartment, something with their little one as they're gaining momentum in life. Because I think what happens is that sometimes we, we want them to succeed, but then we're not using the gifts that God has given to us to give them the chance to succeed, and so you know where they're going to go? Back to where they were. So these are opportunities for us to serve them. Finally, we need to pray. We need to pray that God ends the injustice of abortion. We need to pray that those in power would be convicted to change things. We need to pray for those many women who are even now considering abortion. We need to pray for those who have had an abortion. That they would know the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. 
Not that they would uh, have a comfort that says, oh, it's okay, don't feel bad. No, 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 no. I want them, and we should pray that they would have a comfort that sounds more like this. Don't fear, it's forgiven. By God's grace, Jesus didn't stop just at forgiveness either, did he? He delights in using those he has forgiven to help others. So let's pray that those who have had an abortion would find that freedom to help others. Let's pray that they know the love and grace of Jesus, and let's pray that they will see the love and grace of Jesus in us. So we're going to do something a little different to close our service this morning. Uh, I'm going to pray just real quick. And as, as Jeremy plays, we're going to ask that you, sitting right there where you are, whether by yourself, with your family, with people around you, we want to hear a holy murmur of prayer in this place. We want you to pray for these things. For the next few minutes, we want Uniontown Bible Church to be a house of prayer that is praying against abortion. You can pray by yourself, you can pray with others, whatever you are comfortable with. And then I will close our time in prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, I ask that even now as we pray, that our prayers would be marked by grace and love. And Father, that we would come to an understanding of what we've experienced in Jesus Christ. Lord, I ask for this church that we would be a place of prayer. And that our prayers wouldn't be surface, but they would be deep. Relying on your spirit to accomplish wonderful things that we could never have imagined. Guide us in our prayers now. Amen. Would you spend some time praying?